Well, happy Easter. I'm really glad you're here this morning. We celebrate something this morning. Uh, we celebrate a historic event. We actually celebrate this every Sunday, but Easter Sunday just kind of brings it to prominence. We celebrate the fact that a man named Jesus died on Friday afternoon, and yet the next Sunday morning he was alive again, which has huge implications. Otherwise, we might be just like, you know what? Great, good for Jesus. He died and he came back to life. He won the lottery. Good for him. But this has so much more to do than just one man raising from the dead. And we're going to get into the implications of that today. This is huge. See, everybody dies. You know that. You didn't need to come to church to have somebody to tell you that. Like, in the Guinness World Book of Records, you know what the longest anybody's lived in current history? 122 years. I'm personally shooting for 100, so 122 is like, yeah, that's an overachiever. I like that. So everybody dies. We get that. And yet, here's the thing. There are some people who are putting some serious money into trying to figure out how to exchange in our, our lifespan. I'll give you a few examples. There's, these are billionaires putting money into this. The first example is a guy named Peter Thiel. I don't know if you've heard of him. He founded a little thing called uh, PayPal. You may have heard of that. He's put a lot of money into organizations like SENS, which has the goal of extending the human lifespan and getting rid of contagious diseases. He once said this. I th- find this very powerful. He said, almost every human being who has ever lived is dead. So solving this problem is the most natural, humane, and important thing that we could possibly do. That's a good quote. Then there's Larry Ellison, the founder and longtime CEO of Oracle. He's put some serious money into the Ellison Medical Foundation, like $40 million of his own money. It supports, again, research into aging and global diseases. And he said something recently that just was very powerful. He said, death makes me very angry. It just does. He says, it doesn't make any sense to me. Death has never made sense to me. How can a person be there and then just vanish and not be there? Now, the latest person to wade into the foray to try to solve death is Larry Page, the CEO of Google. And he's put some serious money, Google's money and his own money, behind this idea of trying to solve death. He's put so many millions of dollars into this, into a company called Calico, which has as his mission to extend human lifespan and solve the disease of aging. So go Google. I hope to benefit from some of the the work that companies and groups and people like this, I don't know, I just think it's a worthwhile endeavor to try to alleviate human suffering. I, I think this is a good thing. I hope to personally benefit from it. At the same time, I'm pretty sure we're not going to solve death anytime soon. Go Google, but I just don't know they're going to do it. You know, the thing is, I don't know that we need to worry about solving death because God already did. See, when we look at what Jesus did on that first Easter Sunday morning, like he totally reversed what we think of as death, changed it completely. The resurrection from Jesus from the dead, beyond that, like I said, it's not just Jesus that we're thinking about here. The resurrection of Jesus from the dead has implications for every single person who has ever believed in Jesus. And if you believe in Jesus, there are some serious implications for you, the fact that Jesus raised from the dead. Now, the place that we want to look at in the Bible we're going to study this morning is 1 Corinthians 15. So if you've got a Bible, you can open to that. If you've got a smartphone with a Bible app, you can pull that up. And we're going to be looking through this because... There's some really powerful things that come out of the fact that Jesus rose from the dead, and if that's true. So let's go ahead and start here in uh, chapter 15 and verse 1. And Paul, Paul, by the way, this is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a church that he planted in the city of Corinth. And he tells these people that know him and love him. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel that I preached to you, which you've received and on which you've taken your stand. This gospel is this good news. And he says in verse 2, By this gospel or this good news, you're saved. If you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, 
Otherwise, you've believed in vain. So now in verse 3, he's going to tell us what the gospel is. Here it is. If you've ever wondered, what is the good news? Well, here it is. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. One, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. And then that he appeared to Peter and the twelve. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time. Most of whom are still living. Though some have fallen asleep. Some have died. And then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all he appeared to me, Paul said. So here's what he's saying. Paul points out that the resurrection of Jesus was not just some myth, it's not just a metaphor, it's not a picture of spring, it's not a figment of somebody's imagination. He says it is a historical event. There were eyewitnesses. There are hundreds of people who are still alive at the time that Paul wrote this who could say, I saw it myself. He was dead on Friday. I saw him later. He was alive. And so Paul says, you can check this out. He says it's the foundation for everything a Christian believes. Go ahead and go on down to verse 12. Paul says, okay, so if it's preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection from the dead? Because apparently that's what some people in the church were teaching or saying. There's no resurrection. Verse 13, if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ hasn't been raised, our preaching's useless. So is your faith. Verse 15, more than that, we're then found to be false witnesses about God. We're liars because we've testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. If he didn't raise him, in fact, the dead are not raised. Go down to verse 17. If Christ has not been raised, hey, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. And those who have already fallen asleep in Christ, those who have died in Christ, are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we're to be pitied more than all people. So you can write this down. If you, Paul says, you take away the physical resurrection of Jesus from the dead, there's no point in believing in Jesus at all. You know, this is a waste of time. We're lying to each other. <laughs> it didn't really happen. We shouldn't be here. We should be anywhere else, but not here, if there's not a physical resurrection from the dead. Now, I say all that understanding that on Easter Sunday, there are a whole lot of people in the world, and maybe, maybe it's you, who would say, you know what? I'm not, I'm not necessarily sold on the idea that Jesus actually did raise from the dead. I have some doubts. I, I'm just not sure that I can say, yes, that actually happened. I'm a little skeptical. Maybe you feel that way. Maybe you know some people who say, you know, like, like really, a, a dead guy came back to life? That's just, you're asking me to accept and believe a lot, to believe that that could happen. I have to ask, is it really so extraordinary to believe that God could give life back to a dead person? Really? Is that really a stretch for him? Even considering, haven't we seen this happen before? On maybe a smaller scale, yes, but haven't we seen this? Haven't we seen stories of people who were dead and pronounced dead and they come back to life? I actually want to let somebody tell you about an experience that they saw. Uh, we're inviting Dr. Kent Suter to come and share his story. Uh, you may know Kent as one of our elders, but he's also an ER doc at St. Joe West, and he was there the day a young man was brought in who had, had died after he drowned under the ice in Lake St. Louis. So I'm going to let Kent tell his story right now. Eighth grader John Smith is doing something doctors never believed would be possible. I don't really remember much about it, to be honest. He is walking and talking and trying to make sense of how he's not just alive, but thriving after being underwater for 15 minutes. And the doctor who was on duty in the emergency room at SSM St. Joseph Hospital West the day of the accident, Dr. Kent Souter. And in my mind, this is a very grim very poor chance at survival. Dr. Souter and his team performed CPR on John for 27 minutes with no success. 
The question was raised, how long should they continue? Everybody says, well, the cold helped him. He was dead for over 45 minutes. What happened? Good morning. Boy, I've retold this story hundreds of times. I actually looked through the medical record last night just to kind of get some of the details fresh in my mind. And um, I'm still amazed at the, you know, the unfolding of events. Um, and I still have to reassure myself that this is the way things really happen. Um, you know, but the medical record, which was documented minute by minute, will attest to what I've said and every witness in the room also. I mean, they, they felt something that happened that day. It was January 19th. It was Martin Luther King Jr. holiday, and the kids were off school. Uh, we received a 911 call from the dispatcher. Um, it was around 11.30 in the morning. Um, they said that some kids had fallen through the ice on the lake and that we were expected to receive multiple casualties from this event. Um, EMS called us shortly, short time later with the report, what was you know, the updated report at 940, or I'm sorry, at 11.45, they drug John Smith out of the water. Lifeless, breathless, no pulse, um, and it, with his body temperature in the 80s. I later talked to the fireman that, that found him under the water, and uh, when somebody is drowning in an ice situation like that, they take long poles and they probe the bottom, and they they found his body on the bottom of the lake in 10 to 12 feet of water. He was laying on the bottom. They drug him up, brought him on shore. That's when EMS went to work on him. Uh, CPR for 20 minutes before he arrived in our emergency department. It was 12.05 whenever he got into my shop. His initial temperature was 88 degrees. Uh, that was after we already started warming him, but we don't get a temperature until... We do some invasive things to find the core temperature. But he didn't have any signs of life. Cold, gray, uh, CPR ongoing the whole time. But one of the things that we, our mottos in the emergency department is if you find somebody that's cold, you know, there, there are the, the rare stories that someone will come back to life if, you, if they're warm. So they're not dead until they're warm and dead is what we said. And we continued to work on John for up to about 20 minutes. And by that time, we had gotten his temperature up to 94 and a half degrees. Um, and this is what we consider warm and dead. He was, he was gone. He had been gone for 20 minutes already. Uh, continuous CPR, doing a number of pretty invasive procedures. Um, it was around 8.15. I'm sorry, 12:15. I was contemplating. I was, you know, beginning to see the futility of all these efforts. At this point, I am just—I'm worried about the family more than the patient because I, I know that the patient's gone. They're not coming back. Um, so one of the other doctors went out and apprised John's mother of the situation that it was very grim. Uh, he was—we had been ongoing resuscitative efforts for. 20 to 25 minutes after he'd already drowned. He'd been dead 20 minutes at the scene, under the water, unknown amount of time. So they brought John's mom in. Yeah, and 
at this point, he had been warmed, and 15 to 20 minutes after that, continued CPR. Our normal survivability as somebody in cardiopulmonary arrest, it goes down 10% per minute. So he is well at zero. He's at the bottom of the, you know, the survivability possibility. But John's mom was called in, and I, was, I actually kneeled down next to her, and I, and I was describing the graveness and the futility of the situation, you know, telling her that you know, she should go and say goodbye to her son because he's gone, he's died. Uh, but his mom, I doubt that she heard me. Um, and her response to walking in the room and seeing all of the team performing CPR and doing another, um, another, a number of other things to her son, her response was to cry out to God. And she cried out to God. In, she didn't cry out to God. She yelled to God. Uh, she said, God, you are all powerful. Come, Holy Spirit, and save my son. And she yelled this out in such a way that people in the hallway outside of the resuscitation room heard it. Uh, Our PR person, they had called PR down because they knew this was going to be a high-profile case. She was down the hall, and she heard it. Uh, Mrs. Smith was begging God. She was yelling at God for her son. And it was at this point, just the timing was, it was miraculous. At this point, after we had all given up hope of any survival, John's mom came in, she prayed, and his heart started again right there in front of us. You know, the Holy Spirit came in that day and worked a miracle. And he continued to work a miracle Well, he started long before John went to the ice, but he continued afterwards. Uh, We were able to continue to resuscitate John, and his his recovery can only be described as blessed. I've seen a few patients in my career that survive after extended CPR, uh, but never anybody that's even half as long as the time that John was down. And all of those survivals, the vast majority of them, they just come back for a few hours or a few days to die at a different location. And that's kind of what I expected was going to happen to John. I, I expected that we'd put him in a chopper and he would either die along the way or die you know, shortly thereafter. Maybe we could get some organ donation. Um, but he continued to have a praying mother and he had a a whole team of praying ministers, and John's recovery was complete. A lot of people that have extended CPR, and never to this length of time, will come back and they'll have neurologic problems. Uh, they won't be able to walk, they won't be able to think. But John, I've, I've seen him a few times since then, zero cognitive difficulties. Uh, you wouldn't know that he was dead for an hour. And I get asked a few things about this situation that are probably the most, the most common questions I'm asked. The first one, how do you know this was a miracle? And I, could, I can give a lot of 
medical jargon and the hopelessness of the situation medically, and I hear excuses about cold water saving him. But just the timing of it, the fact that uh, his mother called out to God, and his pulse started again, that right there, it it was enough to send chills down your spine. The other thing which I think is probably more telling to me is the number of lives that have been changed from this event. A number of the nurses who were in the room, they say that they've never been the same. They could feel God's spirit whenever it came in that room. And I've received phone calls and emails from people that I hadn't seen in years that have heard about it, even on the other side of the globe. Uh, I've had close colleagues call and tell me that the, you know this, they heard about this story at a time when they're going through something difficult, and it gave them hope again in their lives. You know, so you know, an, an ordinary medical event will change one or two lives. It'll change a family's life. But this changed lives around the world. The other question I've been asked multiple times is, if I, have I ever seen anything like this before? And the, the answer with these specific circumstances is no. I never have and I never expect to again. I can see a dozen other drowned kids come into my emergency department. I would not, in these circumstances, I wouldn't expect them to live. Um, but there are parallels that we can we can see in all of our lives. Every one of us in this room has died because of the sinful nature that we all possess. And the only way we can be saved is through the miracle of Jesus Christ. We have to be drowned in the water of baptism and God will bring us back from the brink. I encourage you all that if you haven't been saved, if you haven't been baptized into Jesus Christ, get a hold of Brian or myself or one of the other elders and we can walk you through this. But Jesus can perform miracles in your life. Uh, I don't think you want this kind of miracle. It's so profound to me, I I often wish that I hadn't been in the room because it's just, it's emotionally overwhelming. But we all want the miracle of Jesus to take hold of us so that we can have salvation and live with him forever. I appreciate what Kent had to say. It was very powerful, and I wanted him to share that on this Sunday morning where we remember that Christ raised. And, uh, you know, I, I think about this. There have been several accounts of miracles like this in the Bible. Jesus obviously raised at least three people that we know of from the dead. And there are other things like this that I would just genuinely say, give glory to God because there's no other reason you can put to it. And, uh, at the, and I really am thankful for, for John and for his family. At the same time, don't we have to recognize that the people Jesus raised from the dead did die again? Other people who come back from the dead do die again. I want to point out that what Jesus does, and I believe he did these for all these people, what happened with Jesus and his resurrection was in a whole different, whole new category. 
And these other resurrections are things to point us to the power of God to say, look, I can do this, I've done it before, and here, I'm going to do it again. And so what I'm just pointing out here is, I don't think that resurrection should be an intellectual hurdle for anyone. God can do this. He's promised to do this. He did this in Jesus. I want to make sure that we all understand this, and you can write this down. Christianity would never have got off the ground 2,000 years ago if somebody had simply produced a body. Christians start running around saying, Jesus is alive. All the Jewish leaders who hated Jesus had to do, say, no, he's not. Here's his body. The Roman officials who wanted to keep peace in Israel, all they had to do was go, he's not alive. Here's the body. We sealed it in a tomb. It's still there. Nobody could produce a body because there wasn't one. Jesus is in a new category of people who raised from the dead. He's never going to die again. In fact, when Jesus raised from the dead, he went and he appeared to a whole lot of people to show that he was alive. And, uh, Here's where we need to find the linkage between us and what happened to Jesus. In, in 1 Corinthians 15, it says, But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep, those who have died. I like how the message paraphrase puts it. Christ has been raised up, the first in a long legacy of those who are going to leave the cemeteries. And you got to understand, when Paul talks about firstfruit, there's a real powerful word here. Firstfruit is a word that means first of many. Jesus was the first kind of this new kind of resurrection, but there's going to be a whole lot more that follow and so, here's the, the, kind of the whole point of everything that I'm talking about here. There is going to be a resurrection, and every person who has ever lived is going to be raised from the dead into a physical, literal, physical body. That's it. What Jesus illustrates is this is going to ha- what happened for him is going to happen for everyone. Any, uh, any of you Walking Dead fans? If you, I know where to find you on Sunday night, right? So even if you haven't watched Walking Dead, you know what it's about, right? What is it about? Zombies! Eating... People who die, and then their body comes back up, and they're running around eating people. Yeah, so Walking Dead. And I'm not going to spoil anything for you. There's, this isn't a spoiler alert. But if you have watched it, you understand. There's a, a character in the show. He's a Christian man. His name's Herschel Green. Really good man. And he's in the second season, he's trying to wrap his mind around everything that he's experienced. And he's seeing, and he says this, I can't profess to understand God's plan. Christ promised a resurrection from the dead. I just thought he had a little something different in mind. Other than zombies. He did, Herschel. It's not zombies. But I, I get it. Like, resurrection can be a confusing term. What are we talking about? Are we talking about, like, bodies coming back like zombies? Are we talking about something else? What are we doing here? So this is where I want to spend just the last couple of minutes with you, talking about what actually entails people rising from the dead. You know, I've got questions. Maybe you do too. Paul seems to anticipate that the people in the church in Corinth were going to have questions because he spends the, the rest of chapter 15 answering questions. You look down at verse 35. He says, someone might ask, well, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? And so it's a good question. The first question he's talking about here is what literally happens when this resurrection takes place? When all the dead come back to life, what's going to happen? Are we talking about an upgrade, a makeover? Does it involve a, a resuscitation of our current bodies? Do we get a different body? What about all the people who were lost at sea and don't even have a body? People who were you know, cremated, people who were blasted in war, people who lived 5,000 years ago and there is no body. Do they not get to participate? What's this going to be like? And Paul, on down from verse 36 on, he uses a metaphor. And he says, okay, it's kind of like this. You know how when you're farming and you plant the seed or you plant flower seeds? It's like that. There's a seed goes in the ground and something more and greater than the seed comes back out of the ground. And so he goes on and he says it's going to be like a transformation. Look down verse 42 and verse 43. So he says if that's the way it's going to be with the resurrection from the dead. The body is sown or it's like it's planted, it's perishable, it's raised imperishable, it's planted in dishonor, it's raised in glory, it's sown in weakness, it's raised in power. And so what he's saying is, you know, 
your current, my current body, subject to death, subject to decay, subject to decline. Our 2.0 body, not going to be like that. You're not going to get diabetes. You're not going to get cancer. There's not going to be heart failure. You're not going to have Lipitor and Claritin and Vicodin and Rogaine. I'm not going to have to put SPF 500 on any time I go out in the sun. You know, it's all these good things. We're not going to have all these. Thank the Lord, no more Cialis commercials. All that goes away with version 2.0 body. It doesn't have any of those imperfections. And then he goes on. He's like, you know, you think about the implication of this. Some people are going to be out of work. We don't need hospice. We don't need funeral workers because that just doesn't happen anymore. You go down to verse 44. He says that we are planted a, a natural body and we're raised a spiritual body. Don't misunderstand. That kind of sounds like, okay, my first body is physical. My second body float around on the clouds, spiritual. No. Paul's already used this comparison back in chapter 2 of this letter. And he said there's the natural person and there's the spiritual person. And the natural person is someone who does not have the Spirit of God in their life. They don't acknowledge God. They don't live in any way for him. That's the person who does whatever they want. They listen to a different drummer, not God. The spiritual person is someone who has given their life to Christ, has the Holy Spirit living in them, and they do acknowledge God with their life. They honor God with their life. They do everything that God would want them to do. Paul says your version 2.0 body will naturally desire to do the things of God. You won't have an inclination to sin. It won't even be something that appeals to you. You'll have a choice, but you won't choose the bad. You'll choose the good every time. I'm so looking forward to that. So that's what he's saying here. Which um, then kind of brings up another question, because this is so awesome. I'm kind of looking forward to it. The next question will be like, when is this going to happen? Do it today? Tomorrow? When is this going to happen? When's the resurrection going to take place? Now, a lot of people believe that when this takes place is like right when we die. Like we die, and we even have kind of built this into our language. Oh, so-and-so, they passed away, they're in heaven. I bet they're playing the back nine right now. They're playing golf because they love golf. So we kind of think of our new bodies starting as soon as we go to heaven, which is not really what Paul says. You go down to verse 51 and 52, and he says this. Listen, I'm going to tell you a mystery. And by mystery, he's saying, I'm going to tell you something you would never know if God didn't reveal it. I'm going to tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, we will not all die, but we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye. When? The last trumpet. When are we changed? We're all changed at the last trumpet, which is when Christ returns. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. So the change takes place when Jesus comes back. We'll get our new resurrection bodies. We will, uh, we will be changed when Jesus returns. Now, the, there's an order here that we need to respect and follow. Paul says Jesus is the first fruits. He's the first one who raised in this new kind of way. And then he appeared to people for 40 days to prove that he wasn't a ghost or a figment of their imagination or wishful thinking. And then he ascended to heaven, which is where Jesus is right now, at the right hand of God. And there is a day coming. We don't know when it will be. It could be today. It could be tomorrow, 2,000 years from now. We don't know. But there's a day when Jesus is coming back here again. First time he came was to die for our sins, to take away our sins. The second time he's coming to bring our final salvation, to give life to all of us. And we'll get that body that's a continuation of our current body. One of the things I think about with our resurrection body, that it will be a physical body. We will recognize each other. Your personality, the best parts of you, the you you were always intended to be will be that 2.0 body, and everyone will participate. Doesn't, some, some people will be alive when Jesus comes back. Some people will not experience that physical death. 
but everybody will be changed. Which, I guess, brings up another question. Like, okay, so people who pass away right now, where are they? If they don't get their, their new body right now, where are they? What are they experiencing? Well, I'll tell you the quick answer to that is I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> we talked about it last week a little bit, so you can listen to the podcast. If you missed the message last week, you can go to iTunes or our church website. I'm going to talk about it extensively in a couple of weeks, so you've got to come back. It's a good question. It's one we ought to think about. But here's the last question that I want to address because it's one that Paul does. If this is all true, if there really is a resurrection from the dead, what do we do? How do we behave with this? Verse 58. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know your labor in the Lord is not in vain. If everything that I'm telling you is the truth, and I believe it is, I believe it's as true as much as I know that my daughters are listening to Abby. I mean, this is going to happen. There's going to be a resurrection. If this is really true, if Jesus raised from the dead and you put your trust in him, you can stand firm. Don't let anyone convince you that there is no such thing as resurrection. Don't let Satan try to talk you out of this. Don't let anyone tell you your life is pointless and hopeless. No matter how bad your life gets now, it's going to get better. There is hope that no one can take away from you if you put your trust in Jesus. Because no matter how bad things are, even if you die, you're going to come back to life in a real physical body, in a real physical place. All you have to do is keep believing that and don't let anybody talk you out of that. He says, stand firm. Don't let anyone persuade you that this is not the truth. Resurrection is real. And he says, hey, throw yourself fully into your work. Because what you do in this lifetime matters. People will appreciate it for all of eternity. People are going to know and appreciate and be thankful for what you have done. So serve each other with love. Tell each other about Jesus. Invite everybody to get in on the life that he's offering, which is really why I believe that Jesus hasn't come back already. God is waiting as long as he can to make sure that every last person has an opportunity to say yes to Jesus. He's like that. He's kind and he's patient. He's wanting everyone to come to him and not to perish. So that's the whole point. Stand firm, throw yourself into... Maybe you need to do that today, like Kent said. Maybe you need to say yes to what God's offering you. Forgiveness, eternal life. And all you have to do is say yes to it. I love what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 10. He said, by the power that God used to raise the Lord from the dead, he will also use to raise us from the dead. That's why I've decided... That's why so many Connection Christians have decided to put our trust in this Jesus. He's the guy who died on Friday and came to life on Sunday. And he's the one who can put life into your body, forgive you of your sins, and give you new hope. The power that God used to raise Jesus from the dead can be at work in your life right now. Why don't you think about what you need to do with that? Let's pray. Father, I thank you that 2,000 years ago this really happened. I thank you that we're gathered today to worship a man who did raise from the dead. And the implications of this are eternal. Help us to grasp that. Help us to say yes to that. Thank you for being so patient and kind and loving with us, so gracious. We, we don't deserve it, but you do love us. And you've called us and you've invited us to be in your family. So I pray that no one would walk out of here today without like, saying yes to that. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.